Thanks, Giselle. There's um, a really important crux in that testimony. There's a lot of great things in what she shared, but one of the things Giselle said was, there was a point at which, in order to please God, she decided to change her relationship to the local church. Not in order to please herself. It wasn't like it, it was a mall she wanted to go to more stores of, and she was hoping there'd be better sales. She, she believed that actually this was, there, there was an imperative coming from God telling her that she belonged to this thing called the body of Christ. And part of belonging to the body of Christ meant her changing her relationship to it in a really fundamental way. And it's, it was out of that conviction that changed her, what she did, which then changed her experience, which then changed her feelings, which then changed how much she got out of the body of Christ in the local church. This is the fifth week in a series that we're doing on, on real spirituality. And um, we, we um, at the beginning of this year, we started doing um, scripture memory, um, one piece of scripture memory for every series we're going to do this year. So this is like all of seven scriptures we'll learn over the course of 365 days. But this is our one for, for the series. So if you haven't yet memorized it, then um, you can read it off the screen as though you have. <laughs> but let's... Let's say it together. Um, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Now, if that is one of the imperatives of Scripture that describes what on earth we're doing, having come already to Christ, then how do you actually work out— I mean, the, the question that should come from that verse is something like, how do you work out— what God is working in. And if, if the reason why we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling and take it that seriously is because we already know that God is working in us, how do you do that if you're doing something that's of God's doing? In what sense are we supposed to be doing something that isn't a refusal of what God is doing, but actually comes alongside it and is part of it, right? Or one of the ways we've talked about this is what are the habits of grace through which we work out our salvation. What are the things we do? What are the habits or virtues that should be part of our life? And we've talked about these over the last few weeks, right? That they, there's lots of different practices that people have used over the history of the church and use now, right? But they fall into basically three families of things that the Bible talks about. Hearing his voice, that is, God has spoken and shown himself in various ways, and we should hear his voice by attending to those ways he's spoken. The second is having his ear. That is, it would be astounding enough that God had spoken and shown himself. It's a whole second level of astounding that he hears and listens to us that we have his ear. And when you have the ear of a divine being like God, you, you should use it. <laughs> And then the third is, is that in Christ, he has created a new people, which the Bible refers to as his body. That's meant to be an incredibly intimate metaphor, that he is the head of, a, of his own body. And you could argue that in some ways these are all equally important, or you could also make an argument that one or one of them is like the queen of, the vir of these virtues, right? You could say, well, it all, everything comes from God initiating. Therefore, hearing God's voice creates everything and makes everything. And in one way that's true. I mean, the Bible starts with God speaking and there being a creation, right? But in another sense, as we read through the Bible, 
one of the ways, the main way in which we hear God's voice and have his ear is by being part of his body. So you can think about it this way. Um, Think about what the Bible talks about in terms of how to do Christianity, okay? And of any practices designed to help us experience more fully the spiritual transformation of Christ, that is, to work out what God is working in, what spiritual practices that the Bible enjoins on us or tells us to do are designed to be done in a primarily solitarily? Which ones are solitary? Right? Now, culturally, we have this kind of strange obsession with looking inside of ourselves in a way that isn't truly introspective. Being introspective as a virtue is having an external objective standard of truth, and then we look inside of ourselves and to see if what we find correlates with that standard of truth. It's very different than what people do nowadays, which is get inside themselves and find whatever is there and feel like it's their duty to express whatever it is they find. That's not introspection. It creates insanity, which is one of the reasons why solitariness for many people leads them away from Christ or makes them crazy. There's a significant portion of the family of God because there's a significant portion of the family of humanity that when left to themselves— When cooking up inside of their own heads, they don't get better. They don't feel more at peace. They don't—they're not drawn closer to God. They go crazier. They get more angry. They feel more depressed. Right? So what are—what are the solitary needs of grace, right? Right? Well, you could go through a number of guesses, maybe. For, like, one might be fasting, right? I mean, Jesus explicitly said, when you fast, don't parade around like you're fasting and act all hurt and like, oh, I can't believe I'm so hungry. Like, you should wash your face, put on some nice clothes, don't let everybody know you're fasting, right? Maybe that's, right? But if you actually look in the Bible, um, most of the fasts commanded are community fasts for the whole nation that were celebrations. The Day of Atonement, for example, there was fasting and feasting everybody was supposed to do together. The only two times in the New Testament a particular group of Christians fasts and prays in relationship to something, it's the whole church in Antioch fasting and praying for what God's will is. It's when they realize that they're supposed to send out Paul and Barnabas to lead the whole world to Jesus. It's why you're a Christian today. Because there was a local church in Syria that got together and fasted and prayed and said, God, what do you want us to do together? And he said, I want all of you to pool your money and take these two godly men and send them out to the rest of the world. I'm going to take your best two pastors and pay for them to leave you to go to a place where Christ is yet unknown so that he might be known there. And in a place of fasting and prayer where people had put aside their own desire even for food— and entered into joint discomfort and put themselves in a place through prayer where they were seeking the will of God together, they were willing to do something that transformed the world permanently. Right? Even with prayer, though, you might be like, okay, what about prayer, Nick? Like, aren't we supposed to have, like, prayer closets and those get really crowded when people are— they're not prayer elevators, right? So— Um, But even the passage that we think about when we talk about, like, don't pray out in front of people, but go and pray to your God who is unseen, right? Do you know how that passage ends? It ends with with the prayer we know as the Our Father, which is plural, right? 
See, in English, our, um, because we don't use thou anymore, our, English no longer designates whether uh, you, the second person, is plural or singular. Greek does. Greek has totally different words for you, singular, and you, plural. And the Our Father starts with you, plural, right? It's, it's meant to be a prayer we pray together. Our Father, who's in heaven, the one who's Father over all of us, and we're praying the exact same things together because we all have the same needs. We should all have the same desires in many, many ways. We all have the same temptations. We all hurt each other and require—we all require giving and receiving of forgiveness. We all require daily bread and provision. And when we pray those things together, we pray them to the one God who can give them to us, and we pray them recognizing we are all essentially the same, which is very different than how our culture talks about being human. The emphasis right now in our culture is how different we all are. So different that we couldn't even get specific on something like what a gender is. That's way too specific. But you see, in the Bible, prayer is actually used for us all to recognize that there are many differences between us. And yet, we are so much more the same than we ever dared think. And so even prayer, as you go through the Bible— in fact, John Wesley, the great British revivalist, once wrote about Moravians, these German evangelical Christians praying together, and they would all pray in private, and they'd pray together too. And he wrote in his journal, they engage in this thing called private prayer, which is unbiblical. Now, Wesley by that did not mean it was sinful. He didn't believe it was sinful. He just believed it wasn't in the Bible. Now, that's not entirely true because this verse is in the Bible. But one of the things that Christians often feel, there was a whole generation of older Christians now from like the World War II generation that like kind of believed you were supposed to just pray privately. And that faith was so, it was part of the belief that faith was so very private and faith was so very private you shouldn't even talk to your kids about it. Right? And that, there's something true, but this, this verse is about being showy versus about praying to God and not being showy. It's not really about public or private, which is why Jesus can affirm praying by yourself, but as an illustration of how you're supposed to pray in any context, public or private, which is why he can end this verse with a public prayer for us all to pray together, right? Or what about solitude, right? Of all the possible spiritual activities, right? Wouldn't solitude be the one you might do solitarily? Right? That, does that sound kind of obvious, right? Well, first of all, there is no biblical command of solitude. First of all, let's just start there. There are three places mentioned once in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in which Jesus is doing so much ministry, his family is afraid he's crazy. I don't know if you remember this from Mark's gospel, but he's like getting crushed by crowds. They're putting him in boats and putting him out in drowning depth water so the crowd can't push against him so much that they'll kill him because he's like legitimately healing people and nobody's ever seen this before. And after a couple of months of this, of him speaking eight, nine, ten times a day, looking exhausted, he like goes across the lake to this wilderness area so that he can just get away to pray. And then he tries to teach his disciples to do it. And one of the things that we should recognize from that, besides that this is, this is a practice of Jesus that we could emulate, but what is Jesus doing? Is it about introspection and being alone? No, it's about getting away from busyness. It's about getting away from the things that are confusing your priorities and unmaking proper desire. That's what solitude is all about. It's getting to a place, away from the noise, so you can get to a place where you can realize in Christ what your priorities are meant to be, 
and what the right ordering of your desires are meant to be. Right? Vince Pieri is on a solitude retreat right now. Okay? The reason why some people in the room think that's funny is because he got married here last night. And he is leaving for his honeymoon today. That's Christian solitude. You don't believe me? Read Song of Songs. In Song of Songs, there's this couple that's in love, and they're trying to rehearse and enjoy and speak about their love for each other. And so what they do is they own a vineyard, or they have access to a vineyard outside of town, and they go out there to have a romantic getaway. I won't get on all to the salacious details that are spoken of in much detail in that book. But they do that to get away so that they can enjoy love and drink deeply from love together. Listen, getting your kids a two-day babysitter and getting away so you can remember that you're married first and a parent second is the Christian discipline of solitude. And you're with somebody. If, if I were to take, I take the staff on retreat. We're all together. That's the Christian discipline of solitude. Why? Because we're getting away from our desks and our email accounts and our phones. Christian solitude isn't about being by yourself, though that can be really good for some people. It's mainly about getting away from the things that destroy your priorities and distort your desires so you can be reformed in those things so you can go back to the responsibilities and rhythms and roles of your life with your priorities resettled and your desires refocused, right? There were some jokes and I asked some people in the office. I think Becca was like, well, what about chastity? <laughs> Yeah, you're mainly responsible for that, but people who are successful in chastity are usually in communities of people where they have intimate relationships that are non-sexual. There are certain ordered roles about what men and women shouldn't be doing together that everybody agrees on and so forth. It's a team sport, strangely enough. And, and somebody was like, martyrdom, that's just a joke. Uh, martyrdom isn't a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual result. But the point is, is when you survey the habits of grace in the Bible, what you find is, is that habits of grace are first for groups. Most of them are either fine or good to do alone. But none are primarily practiced that way in the Bible or by Jesus. One of the reasons that's important is if you think that you can be a Christian without being part of the local church, you, you've completely misunderstood the practice of grace. And I know some people who don't feel like they have to be part of the local church because they'll be like, well, if I read my Bible and I pray— Right? And I, even if I fast or something, then I don't have to be part of this crazy, weird people, local church thing where we have a 15-minute sing-along, and then we, like, uh, I don't have to do that. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. Because none of those things, even reading the Bible, is meant to be done together with other people. It's one of the things that keep us, keeps us from making idiotic interpretations of the Bible, one of those being, I don't need the local church and its people because I can be part of the body of Christ and not be part of the body of Christ. Right? If you realize that, then you realize, you'll, what you'll realize is though all of the habits of grace begin with God speaking, they're, they're situated in the context of this thing that Christ has created called the body of Christ. And they're meant first to be done together and for that then to order that which we do privately, which means for one of the first and foremost things in what it means to be truly spiritual from a Christian perspective is opposite from what the culture believes. Because the culture believes that if you feel like you're spiritual and you don't belong to anything, you can be. And the Bible teaches that's not true. If you belong to Christ, you belong to something else. You belong to his body. You can't tell a woman you want to marry her head. 
right? As much as she would love the non-sexual overture, um, so that she doesn't have to keep telling you throughout your marriage, hey, I'm up here. Um, it doesn't—ultimately, she wants to be married as a whole person. And God intentionally uses the concept of the body of Christ to drive home to us this idea that you can't be part of Christ and not part of his body. It's, it's, not, it's not even you're being disobedient. It's, it's not even an issue of morality. It's first an issue of truth. If you belong to Christ, you are part of his body. Period. Right? The question is whether or not you live in denial of that or whether you live in embracing its full blessing. Which means you could summarize what we should first believe in this way about what it means to be belonging to his body. That God has given us one identity and has bound us together for our flourishing and perseverance. Okay? So if we come to Christ, he's given all of us together one identity in the body of Christ. In giving us that one identity as a body, he's bound us together. And he, and he told us why. There's lots of reasons which ultimately lead to his glorification and our pleasure in his glory. But functionally in our life right now, it is so that we would flourish and so that we would persevere. Okay? So, you can say it like this. Um, in Christ, you have an identity— he has bound us together so that we, we would experience more, not less, by his binding of us together. The purpose of it is so that we would flourish and so that we would not fail in persevering, but that we would make it to the end. Does that make sense? Okay. In terms of identity, um, God has spoken to us at various times and in many ways about this. This is not a passing verse thing about our identity in Christ, right? There's many verses, including the one that Radhika read from chapter 4 in Ephesians, but also in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 to 27. If one part of the body suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it, right? That we're one new people together. Ephesians 3, 6. The mystery, that is the mystery of Christ, is that through the gospel, what, God is, what Jesus has done in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, creation of the church, giving of his spirit, and all that good news, what he's done is the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. So these two people that hated each other, they have not only come together, but what have they become together? They've become co-what? Heirs. That is, they are inheriting the same blessing. So the Gentiles aren't just adopted. They are adopted and inherited. Think how angry you would be if there were like three kids in your family and you were like basically middle class and you were hoping for like some kind of meaningful inheritance, right? And your dad dies and your mom marries this widower that has five kids and totally rewrites the will for equal distribution. How do you think you'd feel about that? So glad that your mom's happy, right? You would think about the inheritance at some point. And like, this is what God says the gospel has done. That the inheritance that Israel deserved, which was limitless, a, all the other nations of the world got added into. So they were like an only child, right? And they got like a whole Ethiopian orphanage added to their family. That's what happened. And they're supposed to be happy about it because they should be happy about it. Because we are one new people. Right? 
one Spirit, one Lord, one faith, right? That passage Radiga read, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God of Father all, who is over all and through all and in all. And to each one, grace has been given to each of us individually. Why? For the good of each other who are bound together in that unity in which we have the bond of peace. That we're, fellow, that we're one family. 1 John three fourteen and 16. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. You could say and sisters. So how do you even know you're a Christian? John is saying. The whole book of 1 John is about whether or not you're really a Christian. How could you know that? If your own mind is going crazy, if you're off in introspection land, and you're not even sure if you're really a Christian, you say you believe in Jesus, you want to believe that you believe in Jesus, are there any external objective measures by which you could actually for sure know that what you're working out, God is working in? And one of the examples John gives is, this is how you know you've passed from death to life. That is, God is working his life in you. Because we love our brothers and sisters, that is, in the body. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for our brothers. That word brothers, in all of John's writing, is specifically focused on the church. That is, when people come to Christ, we become spiritual brothers and sisters to each other. And that is the familial relationship he's referring to because John believes and shows us everywhere he believes that Christ has created one new family out of all the families of the world. We're fellow citizens, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, that there's one building made in Christ, right? First Peter 2 says, we are all like living stones being built into one temple. We all received one commission, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 21, it's for all of us, right? Jesus came to his disciples and said, all of you go into all the earth and make disciples of all nations, right? That, that belongs to all of us. And the Bible says that we're all fellow heirs. The Spirit himself testifies. This is Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And so one of the most integral things that we could possibly do is be transformed on the spot today and believe and embrace this is your identity. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to his body. He has given us one new identity. Do you believe that? I know it scares you, but fear doesn't determine truth. We can deal with how afraid we are of how this is going to affect our lives later. It shouldn't affect whether or not we believe it is the truth. This is what Jesus says everywhere. We're one family. We're heirs together. We're part of one body. We are one. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Do you believe that? Is that in utterly foundational in how you see the whole world? That in Jesus, you have become part of a unbreakable, everlasting cosmic family in which you are a co-heir with Christ. That which you stand to eternally inherit is that which Jesus Christ himself stands to eternally inherit, and that everybody else stands to inherit it too who belongs to Jesus, just like you. 
Because if you don't believe that, you need to believe that. Or you, you can't ever, you can't ever commit yourself to the strange, odd, um, expectation non-meeting family of real humans that make up this church because the people who are all around you are just like you. They're trying to figure out how to work out what God is working in. And that can only happen in a context of unity and grace and truth. And when unity, grace, and truth comes together, it always produces humility. People that will bear with one another. All right, the second is, part of this is that God has given us one identity, and in giving us one identity, he has commanded us to be bound together, right? Now, the minute some people feel like they're like, they're like, okay, so this is your telling me I'm supposed to go to church, I'm supposed to be part of this group, it feels to a lot of people like they're getting tied together, and like this is going to like trip them up and take away their, like, their choices, and it's like having their shoelaces tied together. This, that's the kind of bound together they hear, right? But that's not how Jesus means it. Jesus means it a lot more like lashing together things to create a structure for some greater purpose. When he ties us together, it's like, it's like tying your baby to you when the flood is coming down the road. It's, there's a binding together that raises us up, that holds us together in very difficult situations. There were some battles in the ancient world in which they knew that the, that the pressure of crowds was going to be so profound that men either tied themselves back to back around the waist or they tied their non-sword arm together so they couldn't get pulled apart so that they could fight better, not worse. Right? Um, does anybody know what this is? If you know, you can yell it out. Sorry? No, no, Masada is super way taller than that. Um, no, it's the Karen of Barnanez, right? The Karen of Barnanez, right? So, um, so Becca knows of this because this is from France, right? This, it's the oldest still standing building in the world. Okay. Um, this is, um, is a little house on the Scottish coast called the Nap of, the Nap of Haar which is spelled H-O-W-A-R, not W-H-O-R-E. Um, and it is the oldest known residence in the entire world. Okay? Now, for some reason, most of the oldest buildings in the world, like the top seven or eight or nine, are all in Europe. The first five are in France. And it's kind of—that's kind of interesting that, like, the oldest buildings still standing are in some of the coldest places in the world. Or, or the British Isles, some of the windiest. Because people who live in places where the, the outside is harsh, and they know it's harsh, love shelter. <laughs> it, it's not surprising to me that a northern Scottish Isle would have come up with a building that would last for five and a half thousand years. Archaeologists say that in this house, people lived in that house for a thousand years. Not, I mean, not one person, but like succeeding generations. It's not, yeah, so it's not the Highlander, like there can be only one. It's like a family, right? And because, and, and, and it's, it's um, doors faced the sea where some of the worst wind would come from. But it didn't matter because they had a hill surrounding them. You see? And when, when Jesus talks about binding us together, making us one new temple, it's not, 
So you see, if you think you're running in a golden field where it's ever sunny and 74 degrees, or that your life is laying on a beach with a light offshore breeze and dolphins, you know, lightly surfacing in the distance, the idea that you would have to go indoors, you know, in the body, it just sounds like soul-crushing. But if you see the world as it is, claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by Christ, full of people who bear the image of God but are twisted in depravity, a place that is brutal and hard, a place where people more often live by the rules of the junkyard than rules of the garden, then the idea that there is a holy living temple meant to, to surround you and uphold you and to protect you and guide you, to help you work out what God is working in, that sounds a lot better. And that is— the reality in which Jesus binds together the people of his body. Right? And the reason, the way he does this is by creating, by giving us commands about our lives, by creating a structure of this thing called the local church, and by even creating offices of its leadership. Right? People, people talk about not liking organized religion, but imagine somebody creating a disorganized building— Right? Nobody wants to live in a disorganized building that was built that way. And so, so Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, okay, listen, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. And we're taught, like, to love one another, to pray for one another. There's actually one verse that's translated in Ephesians 4, bear with one another, that Tim Keller has um, retranslated as put up with one another, which I think is probably very accurate. Like, literally, one of the commands of the local church is put up with one another. Right? That'll change your local church experience on the spot. If you're like, I don't like that person, but Jesus said, put up with one another. I can apply that first to my life right now. Right? I might help you in your marriage even. Right? He's also given us structures. Right? He's, he said, I want you to get together. When you get together, I want you to worship. I want you to pray, mainly together. Right? He gives us these ordinances like the Lord's Supper and baptism in which we remember the gospel and we rehearse the gospel and we profess that we believe in the gospel, right? He's commanded that there be teaching. That's why we have preaching in the local church. He's commanded that, like, we teach each other and that we exhort each other. We're like, dude, you shouldn't do that. Or like, you should totally do that. People are supposed to meddle in your life. That's what family does, Right? And that's intentional. It's supposed to be that way. And Jesus created these structures so that— how do you meddle in each other's lives? Well, only a family gets together, right? And they have situations where they talk about what they believe together and rituals in which they, they share together. I was talking to somebody today about um, these, two, these two young women that I youth pastored like 15 years ago. And um, all their kids are believers. Five daughters. They had, they had three daughters, and they're like, one more tried a boy. They had twin girls. And— um, to this day, their youngest kids are in their 30s. Every Tuesday at 8 o'clock, there's a family conference call that nobody misses for 30 minutes to an hour. Everybody says, gives an update. Everybody shares a prayer request. They all pray for each other, and then it's over. Right? Like, that's a family, that's a family that knew that creating a structure based on commands and agreements produces beauty and health and connection and relationship Right? And then, in addition to that, Jesus created offices. Jesus wanted a church that functioned in a deeply organic way while simultaneously being somewhat hierarchical. 
right? He, he created positions of authority in the local church. P- that is, people to shepherd belonging, right? He, he created this office of elder, pastor, overseer, the office of deacon. In Ephesians 4, there's, right, there's apostle, prophet, worker of miracles, teacher, and pastor. Those in Ephesians 4 are probably itinerant ministers. That they didn't, they didn't stay like in one place, but they went all over. Because there weren't competent people to teach. I mean, the, in, the, the, the reality in America that there's an ordained minister for every 300 people in the population is in, not only just flatly insane, but is, is, was unheard of and unthinkable for the, almost the entire history of the world. In certain places in India, there's, there's like an ordained, trained pastor for hundreds of thousands. There's even some places in the world where it's estimated that if you, if training is anything like, is like even like a year of college level training-ish in Christian ministry and doctrine and understanding, that there are some places in the world where it's like one, two, and the number has seven digits to the millions. And so in the early church, there, I didn't exist. Like, I would be going around Minnesota and Wisconsin, and like, and I'd be, I'd be like, in shipwrecks in Lake Superior, and like, you'd be praying for me, and my constitution would not have held up. Like, that's what life was like then. And so there were all, there were these itinerant offices of usually of teaching and blessing. Apostles would start new things. Teachers would go to these local churches and teach them the gospel. People who, who did miracles and prophecy, they'd go and they'd minister for a short period of time, and then they'd move on. And then in the local church, you'd have these elders who are shepherds and deacons who are serving. And there was this other office in 2 Timothy, or 1 first, first Timothy, called the List of Widows, which were women who were over 60 years old, whose husbands had died, who came into the full-time ministry and care of the church. The church would care for them, and they did all kinds of acts of good in the church and outside the church, loving people and teaching people and training women in godliness. And, and God created these offices so that the church's structure would be structured. And yet, there would be an organic life to our life in Christ. And so part of realizing we're part of the body of Christ realize, is realizing that the body of Christ has a divinely ordered skeleton to give us shape and movement, but that is meant to release a certain kind of creativity and openness and all of us being part of it, rather than crushing it down and creating like a stage show where we, you do nothing and I try to kill myself. Does that make sense? So, Jesus gave us one identity. See if you can move that forward, would you? Gave us one identity. He bound us together in one body. Oh, now it went too far ahead. And he did it for our flourishing and our perseverance. Okay? He did it for our flourishing and our perseverance. Um, in, in John 10, that's the passage about G- Jesus being the shepherd, and he, he creates this fence, and he is the gate himself, and he is the shepherd. And the purpose of that is, is that he doesn't lose sheep, and he doesn't let in wolves, and he doesn't let in sheep thieves, and he cares for his sheep so that they can thrive, right? In the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, 12 to 14, he's— Now remember, the book of Hebrews, like all the epistles of the New Testament, are directed at the church, not to those outside the church. So this passage is directed to people who believe in Jesus and claim to be believers in Jesus, okay? He says this, See to it, brothers, that is, you who claim to be believers, right? Brothers and sisters in Christ, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, 
That is, as long as there are days, right? So that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. There's a doctrine that came to America in about the middle of the 1800s called once saved, always saved, which essentially teaches this, that if any point in your life you accept Jesus, God gives you a permanent gift of salvation and you are going to heaven. You don't at any point in your life have to at all act like a Christian, and you don't have to work out with fear and trembling because all that's gone because you're going to heaven. And it turns out when you read the Bible more carefully, that's a corruption of a much older doctrine called perseverance of the saints. That is, that when God saves someone, he works in them, and they work out what he works in them through fear and trembling, and he causes them to persevere to the end so that they, if they are saved, they do make it. But it's a very different concept. Because the set first concept does not have bound in it the idea of perseverance in faith, and the other demands it. And you see, the whole Bible says the second is true. We have come to share in Christ, past tense. So how can you know if in the past tense, when you believed in Jesus, you really came to share in Christ? If, so it's a test of a reality in the present, if we hold firmly, how long? Till the end, the confidence we had at first. You see what he's saying? And so wait, if you believe that, then how would you behave? Well, the, the most dangerous possible thing would be then is if your heart hardened, right? Because as long as you're in the game, as long as your heart is in the game, as long as you'll trust Jesus, as long as you'll try to figure out what he's doing, as long as you're holding confidence in Jesus, no matter how messed up your life is or what you're doing, if your heart is soft towards God, then he can be working in some, something into you and you can be trying to respond to that by working it out. Okay, so the most important thing that could possibly be the case for anybody who believes in Jesus is a soft heart turned in Jesus towards faith. Jesus, what do you want? What's going on? What do you believe? How should this affect me? And the most dangerous possible thing to perseverance then would be the hardening of the heart, which we're all in danger of every minute. And so we need help from other people. How often, according to this passage? Weekly? Every Sunday? Or maybe twice a month? Maybe we could go to church twice a month, right? Like, what does it actually say we need? It says daily, right? So we're going to be having services. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but Tim Keller said one time, listen, if you think you can come to church for even two hours on Sunday morning and really be part of the body of Christ as Jesus intended you, you're lying to yourself. Why? Because the most important thing is for us to keep a heart open towards faith and tenderness towards Christ, willing to receive what he has to teach us about what's going on. That is always in every moment in danger of hardening. And what we require, what he commands all of us to do for each other is every day for us in relationship with each other, not just in this room, but outside of this room, to be like, hey, how's it going? How are you trusting God today? Like, what's going on? What is hardening your heart that you need this? How, right, as long, if you can wake up and say, this is Thursday, that means you could refer to this day as today. And as long as you could refer to this day as today, you should be in the game of encouraging and exhorting each other because the biggest danger is the hardening of heart because what we all so desperately need is to persevere to the end with the hope that we had at first. Does that make sense? You see, if that's your doctrine of salvation, your view of the church will go way up. Right? 
Now, send me forward one, would you? Um, there's, there's two really critical verses in relationship to this. One is how Jesus wants us to flourish. Actually, go back to the one right before that. I think I, it went forward too. Is in perseverance. And in Hebrews 10, he gets back to this. He says, listen, let us, that is all of us who are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. You see, it's the exact same thing from chapter 3. Let us, so what's the goal of this passage? That we would all, that you, for your whole life, would hold unswervingly, right, to the hope that we profess in Jesus, right? Why? Because he who promised it is faithful. So you can trust Jesus to do it. So the only thing that's, that's an if-then here is your hope, right? He who promised is faithful. So let us consider then how we're going to do this. If we're going to hold unswervingly, and we know that the Jesus who is the object of our faith is faithful, faithful let's consider and talk together how we, would, how we would do this, right? And he says, how we could spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Now listen, I don't know if you've ever been spurred. Okay? I don't know if you've ever been spurred. It's, it's not, I don't, I mean, I've only ever been the spurrer in my life, riding horses when I was younger, and I didn't even have the spur pointy things on. I just had boots. Horses don't really like it, but it helps them get going when they don't want to go. Okay? And so he, when he says, let's consider together, he's not like, let's consider how we can not get into each other's business, and let's consider how we don't make each other's lives at all harder, and let's not consider how we would end up challenging each other, or rebuking one another, or exhorting one. No, he's like, let's figure out how we could spur each other. Now, granted, that's probably somewhat a figure of speech. You're not supposed to make people bleed, probably, okay? So don't, don't like go out and be like, you're still doing that? And like, punch somebody in the face, then we gotta get the rug cleaner, you know? But he's serious about it. We need to move each other forward even when we want to trot and we don't want to run. And so he says, how are we going to do this? What's the main way we're going to do this? He says, let us not stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So he's like, in order for us to spur each other, we got to be close enough to ride somebody, right? Like we got like to be right there so that we can do the spurring right? And he's like, some people have just stopped meeting together, and they think that's going to be okay. It's not going to be okay, right? In fact, he says, as we get closer to the day of Christ's return, should we meet together more or less? He said, more, not less, right? He's like, as you see the day approaching, do it more, not less. Because it's likely, based on what we know about how things progress and how they cycle, is things often get worse before they get better, and it's apparently going to get considerably worse before it gets very much better when Jesus returns in the end. And so whenever you think you see the day approaching, which every Christian believes they see in their lifetime, because they always see certain things going bad, whenever you go like, things are going bad, he says, the way you should respond to that is not complaining on Facebook. The way you should respond to that is to get together with other Christians and let them spur you. Because Jesus has brought us together for our perseverance, and he's also brought us together for our flourishing. At the end of that verse that Radhika read in Ephesians um, chapter 4, it says that he gave everybody gifts just as he wanted to. And it says, as you—this is the verses after that. He, he says that the reason of this is so that the body of Christ may be built up until—what's his goal? It's a, it's a very modest goal. 
until every one of us has unity in the faith in our knowledge of Christ. <laughs> it's a modest, it's a modest goal. But he's not done. So goal one, all of us have unity in the faith and in our knowledge of Christ. We're all unified in all of that. Modest goal number one. Modest goal number two, right? Um, that we would become mature. How mature? Attaining to the entire measure of the fullness of Christ himself. Modest goal number two, right? Result. That then as a people, we would no longer be like babies or like tiny ships. Right? Infants who, who constantly need to be taken care of. Or ships who, anytime there's a little wave, we're like rocking like this in the water. We just don't know what to do. Blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, modest goal number three, that would be people who spoke the truth in love and in all things, how many things? All things grow up. Right? That, you could actually say that to me. That's like a biblical exhortation. Grow up. It's in this verse. You might want to write down. You'd be like, Ephesians 4, 15. Grow up. So then all things, we would grow up into him who is the head. That is, if somebody does say that to you, you could say, you're quoting that verse out of context, right? Grow up into everything who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, the, Jesus gave us one identity in order to bind us together for the purpose of us persevering, but not even just to persevere, but to flourish. You're not supposed to just persevere. That's not Jesus' goal for you. And I'm not saying do better. I'm saying have more hope. You can have more hope. Because if you're part of his body, and if you allow yourself to be bound together, and if we really spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and we allow all the things that Jesus has distributed in his whole body together to love and serve and honor with humility and, and be people of truth and gospel to each other, if we will, as long as it's called today, and all the more as we see the day approaching, get in the game of spurring one another up for our, each other's goods so that we would— <coughs> Grow up into those very simple and modest goals that Jesus has for us. So that in the words of Ephesians 5, we would be without spot or wrinkle as a bride prepared for Christ. You would realize that the belonging to his body, believing that you're part of it, believing that that's your identity, relishing that truth, binding yourself in love and covenantal relationship to the others who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, trusting Christ in hope that what is our identity and what he's bound us together is truly for our perseverance and flourishing, and to know that that is what will bring us the most satisfaction and joy in Christ, that will glorify him the most, and will produce the end of us working out what Jesus is working into us. Now, when we, we get together and we celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper, this is one of those structured things where Jesus has called us together to realize how the same we are and how the, his death and resurrection is the only thing that unites any one of us individually to God 
And it's also the thing that creates the basis for the forgiveness and therefore then love and binding together that we must have as his one family. And so when we take this little cup and little cup of juice and little piece of bread, it stands for something very profound, which is our salvation is found in the death of Jesus and in his resurrection. Not in our righteousness, not in our accomplishments, not in our pedigree or ethnicity, not in the city we live in or the team we cheer for or the courses we've taken or the news sources that we dutifully have zapped into our phone and don't read. What, what makes us people being redeemed and brothers and sisters of each other is that Jesus did something for us and all we've done is admitted it. And we come together now to admit it again because we forget it in about 30 seconds. Like you'll, you'll, people will eat communion this morning and go out and start talking to people partly on the basis of how attractive they are. I mean, this will happen this morning. Right? That's it's crazy. This puts us all on the same footing. Totally. Christ has died for us and risen for us. He's ascended and poured his spirit out on all who believe. The most important thing about any of us is that we bear the image of God and that we're dwelt by the Spirit because we're justified by Christ. Well, if those three things are true, those three, three things are true, and you can't earn any of those three things. And that will create a humility that creates a possibility for love and a movement out towards another person that can create unity and forgiveness and love. So as we, as we pass these elements this morning, if you believe in Jesus, you should take them, even if you're not doing great. Because what's required to take this is faith in Jesus and hope. That Jesus can work out of you what he's working into you if you trust him. And you should relish that. He's done it for your flourishing and perseverance. And use this time to think about what him making us a single body of Christ means. What it means for you and what it means for us. Let's pray. God, please help us to take in the meaning of the Lord's Supper, even though we use these very little tokens in this ritual. Help us to believe in your body broken and your blood shed for us and for all. That on that basis we receive your spirit and none other. And that it is by your gracious gift of your spirit and what we can trust you for that you work out of us what you've worked into us if we trust you and have hope. Help us to reflect now, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please come and help us to reflect and believe and to not have a hardened heart but to be spurred by you to believe what's true in Jesus' name.